Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. On the 18th of May, 1922, the British translator and novelist Sidney Schiff hosted a dinner party at the Majestic Hotel in Paris. 40 guests were invited in all. But there were four guests in particular that Schiff wanted to bring together to uh, generate, to see sharing dinner party chat. They were Igor Stravinsky, the great Russian composer, Pablo Picasso, great Cubist painter, James Joyce, Marcel Proust, probably the two greatest novelists of the 20th century. Stravinsky and Picasso turn up on time, but um, Joyce and Proust don't. And then very late, Joyce turns up and he is very shabbily dressed and he's drunk. Yeah, he's drunk. And and he's got drunk because he doesn't have um, evening wear. And so he's a bit stressed about that. So, (laughs) which is, I mean, we've all, we've all been in that situation where you don't know what you've got to wear. you and your deck shoes again, isn't it? Exactly. So you just get drunk and then you turn up and anyway, but then in contrast to to Joyce, who's all kind of disheveled and shabby, Proust turns up at 2.30, immaculately dressed, kind of beautiful buttonhole, white gloves. You'd expect that. White silk scarf. Um, And they settle down and (laughs) they're... Their, commu- their their conversation, the conversation between Joyce and Proust, these the two greatest novelists of the twentieth century. It's not. It's, well, there were it doesn't sing, it. does it? There are different versions. So one of them is that uh, Proust. They they basically are only thought to have exchanged a few words. And some people say that Proust said to Joyce, "Do you like truffles?" <laughs> and uh, I'm not going to do Joyce's accent. A terrible accent. Joyce said, "I, I can't do that." <laughs> Joyce said, "Yes, I do." <laughs> That's brilliant. Liam Neeson-esque. Yeah, that was Liam Neeson-esque. <laughs> the reason that we mention this, obviously, is that it's the 100th anniversary, not just of that meeting, but of, Dominic, you, I mean, you suggested this, that, that this that this is the year the modern begins. And um, it the, the person actually who suggested that 1922 was a kind of year zero uh, well, actually, 1921 is the year zero, so 1922 is, is year it's one year of one. the new era, yeah. um, was uh, Ezra Pound, uh, notorious subsequently as a kind of fascist uh, supporter of Mussolini. He went to prison, didn't he? I mean, he got convicted he did, in indeed. the long run. Yes. But in his early incarnation was an incredible patron of um, kind of radically brilliant writers. So not just Joyce, but also T.S. Eliot. So, uh, which is, uh, and Eliot's great poem the wasteland is also published in 1922 so ezra pound is kind of moving around in the background here um and and he uh he wrote to hl mencken um who was the guy who covered the uh, the monkey trial yeah uh, in america trial. yeah escapes trial and he said the christian era 
ended at midnight on October the 29th to the 30th of last year, i.e. 1921. You are now in the year one PSU, post-scriptum Ulysses, if that is any comfort to you. Uh, and Dominic, I wonder, uh, do you think Pound was onto something? Is 1922? Well, we had lots of questions about this, Tom, when we put it out. So Lauren MGM, for example, said, why 1922? Is it a spectacularly loaded year just due to a cluster of important events? Um, and I think there is something about 1922. So there are particular years, aren't there, that, that feel, you know, resonant. 1968, 1989, um, particularly in the sort of immediate aftermath. And I think 1922, if to me, it feels like the, the Great War, and the Great War is completely going to overshadow this episode, as it overshadowed all culture and politics at the time. The Great War had been this tremendous rupture. And then... You know, people think that the sort of war ended and then the Roaring Twenties began. That's the way it's commonly presented in the kind of popular imagination. But it's not really like that at all. The war doesn't end definitively because lots of fighting continues in 1919, 1920 and so on. Yeah, as we'll in discuss. Uh, I mean, the Russian Civil War, fighting in Turkey and so on. Irish Civil War. The Irish Civil War, incredibly war brutal in the Levant. And, and, yeah. and bloody. So the the war doesn't really end. And there's this period of two or three years of tremendous flux and uncertainty and I think 1922 feels like the point at which things begin to settle down a bit and a new order mm -hmm. um, is sort of palpable and yeah. new themes that are going to dominate the politics. Actually, in the case of one of these themes, which is Bolshevism and the existence of the USSR, that's, I mean, the USSR is, only comes into being at the end of 1922, but that's not just going to dominate the politics of the 1920s, it's going to dominate politics right through to the end of the 1980s. And I think yeah. you can see, argue there is a block of history from the early 1920s right through to, let's say, the end of the 1980s that is dominated. I mean, the issue of communism and, and versus capitalism is absolutely central to it, yeah. but also the disintegration of the great empires and, and what is going to happen to the world in the wake of these European colonial empires. Yes. You could also say about other things as well that, uh, so relationship of the United Kingdom and Ireland Yes. Dated 1922, really. Um, the configuration of, of what we'd call the Middle East, but then would have been known as the Levant. Um, yeah. Takes on, you know, things develop in, in, in 1922. But I, I wonder um, if we're talking specifically about, you know, 1922 as the year that the modern begins. Yeah. There are obviously that the events that we're talking about now are political ones. And you could say 1914 would be a more obvious one or or 1917 for the Russian Revolution, or 1918, the, the end of the First yeah. World War. But um, we began with uh, Picasso and Stravinsky and Joyce and Proust. And there is also this idea that around this time, culturally, things change. And that 1922 could rank there with, um, I don't know, Freud or uh, yeah. Picasso or whatever. But I think the reason for this year, particularly for if you're English speaking, is that the greatest English novel in English and the greatest poem in English written in the 20th century, both published in the same year. Yeah, and they're both texts that cast themselves as kind of modern. Yeah. I think and indeed, in a way, right. kind of, you know, a breaking down of the tradition that had gone before. I think that's absolutely right. It's the end of Victorianism, isn't it? The I mean, we can argue... 
Though modern and modernism are very, very slippery concepts. Yeah, absolutely. Thomas Hardy talks about the ache of modernism in Tess of the D'Urbervilles, written decades before. And you can see modernist fiction, modernist culture emerging before the First World War. You could see it in Henry James or in Joseph Conrad or something. But you're absolutely right. For anybody who's ever done English literature at university or something, 1922 is this absolute landmark year because you have... What is it? In February, you have the publication of Ulysses, which is James. Yeah, it's, so it's, on the, it's, on, it's on the second day of the second month of yep. 1922. So it's yes. 2222, which is Joyce's 40th birthday. Perfect. And then at the end of the year or towards the end of the year, October, the publication of T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland. So we've got these two great landmarks. And let's talk about Joyce first, because... The interesting thing about Ulysses is that Ulysses is not really a 20s novel because he conceived it so long before. He conceived it well before the First World War. What, 1906, 1907 or something? And it's set. When is it set, Tom? You know when it's set, don't you? Well, it's set on the 16th of June, 1904, which is um, the day that Joyce saw, well, first had a, a, a kind of date with the woman that he would subsequently go on to marry. Uh, who was a uh, a chambermaid from Galway called splendidly Nora Barnacle? Yes, um, and so the whole novel is 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 an attempt to 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 bring to life fictionally the Dublin that Joyce was living in on that day. Yeah, um, and it's I mean, it's a stupefying achievement. But as you say, it's it's actually not a novel that that is really about the First World War or the convulsions of the age at all. And in fact, <laughs> Joyce. Um, Joyce spent the First World War in neutral Switzerland he did and Zurich, kind of yeah. affected a, oh, is there a war on? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> quite a did. tone. I mean, and, and you know, this 1922 is the year of um, establishment of the Irish Free State, a collapse into civil war. Joyce affects complete lack of interest yeah. in it. And in fact, he keeps a British passport t- till he dies. Yeah, he never had an Irish passport. I mean, it's not like he's, he's, you know, he's very, very hostile to British imperialism in in Ulysses. The Brutish Empire, yeah. And Ulysses, the funny thing about Ulysses is at the point that it's published, it's it's describing a world that no longer exists. Because at that point, you know, Ireland and um, and Britain have been embroiled in the, the Irish War of Independence. And, and, and within weeks, as you say, Ireland is going to be engulfed by civil war. So he's describing a Dublin that in some ways, you could argue, has kind of vanished. Well, absolutely it vanished. I mean, because, because it's the, this weird combination of incredible imagination incredible kind of verbal pyrotechnics you can never quite be sure where he's going to go with his imagination with his literary styling with um with all kinds of 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 radically novel fictional techniques but at the same time he is deliberately trying to evoke a specific day and so he studies all the newspapers and you know he writes to people saying what were you doing on such and such a day and what was going on what what were shops were there and all this kind of stuff and and I think that that's the the fascination of it is that it's a novel that um, in a way very self-consciously tries to fragment the the literary traditions of the novel, but also is very, very aware of itself within that tradition. Well, that's what makes it very modernist though, isn't it? Exactly. So, so, so rather like Picasso in his, um, in his cubist phase, the, the, the process of kind of deconstruction depends on there being a great tradition to deconstruct yeah. i mean that's exactly so when t.s Eliot writes the wasteland which we'll come to in a second and he's sort of assembling it from fragments of of, of poems and of novels and of kind of shakespearean references and so on it's exactly the same thing it's the sort of image of somebody smashing 
Yeah. You know, taking culture and smashing it into fragments, and then trying to reassemble them to make a kind of new myth, because there's a lot of myth in yeah. both of those. I mean, what, what, one way perhaps in which Joyce, like Eliot, is is very, you know, is responding to a sense of the modern. So Eliot, um, in his an essay he writes on the metaphysical poets, so that's John Donne and people like that. He he famously says that we can only say that it appears likely that poets in our civilization, as it exists at present, must be difficult. Our civilization comprehends great variety and complexity, and this variety and complexity, playing upon a refined sensibility, must produce various and complex results. Now, that's also what Joyce is basically doing. Yeah. That even to try and sum up a single day in a single city in the modern world is so difficult, the conventional forms of fiction are inadequate to it. And so you need to kind of... it. That's why it has to be difficult. Now, Dominic, you, this, of course... You know, your, your your great theme in your wonderful series of books on modern Britain is is that, of course, while, you know, the radical artistic talents are doing their stuff, life goes on as normal. Yeah. And of course, that is the backdrop, both to both the Ulysses and the Wasteland. So do you know who else actually had the, her first her first work published in? Go on, Tom. Amaze me. Amaze me. Ina Blyton. <laughs> well, so Ina Blyton, her first volume of, it was a, a volume of poetry, her very first line of verse. So this is a fascinating compliment to Eliot in The Wasteland. In the garden very early, Rosamunda's walking. And to her surprise, she hears lots of fairies talking. Oh, isn't that nice? Which in a way, so in El- in, in The Wasteland, yeah. people walk along banks of rivers or across <laughs> London Bridge and you hear strange phantasmal voices from... Different Very eras of time. Well, there's a but uh, Enid Blyton <laughs> said about modernism, and I'm sure she had Joyce in mind particularly. <laughs> I'm young and normal, and I prefer something more wholesome. That's fantastic. Well, I mean, you see, this is one of the interesting things. So this is arguably so that the people you mentioned, Picasso, Stravinsky, Joyce, Eliot, what they all have in common is not just that they're trying to assemble new, new, new myths, new ways of seeing the world out of the fragments of the past, out of a world that's been shattered in the first decades of the yeah, these 20th These fragments century. have I shored against my Exactly. Yeah. But they are all, in a way that is, I think, different from the, the previous couple of generations, they're very controversial. And they they delight in being radical and avant-garde and getting yeah. terrible reviews. So, you know, people famously kind of walked out of the Rite of Spring and been horrified by it when Stravinsky pioneered it in 1930. And Ulysses in 1922. I mean, 1922 is punctuated by Ulysses getting a series of absolutely terrible re- and hilarious <laughs> reviews. So the Daily Herald set took nearly six years of Joyce's life to write, and it will take nearly six years of hours to read. The Daily Express, always very robust. <laughs> our first impression yeah. is that of sheer disgust. <laughs> our second of irritability, our third of boredom. Reading Mr. Yeah. Joyce is like making an excursion to Bolshevist Russia. Well, this is a theme we'll come back to. And my favourite one is from the Sporting Times. Can you believe the yeah. Sporting Times? Yeah, the Pinkham, as it was called, reviewed yeah. Joyce. And it said, it appears to have been written by a perverted lunatic <laughs> who has made a speciality <laughs> of the literature of the latrine. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, this yeah. is well, well, but uh, of course. So, so if you are giving the whole of life, so um, Ulysses follows um, well three people. One of them, Stephen Dedalus, who is a, who is basically Joyce, it's a self portrait yeah. portrait of the artist as a young man. Then Leopold Bloom, who is a cuckolded um, Jewish salesman, and then at, right at the end, this great kind of 
single sentence soliloquy monologue from um, Bloom's wife, Molly. Um, But obviously, if you're following these figures through their whole course of the day, they have to do all kinds of things. So going to the uh, toilet. (laughs) So go to the toilet, but also um, masturbation, sexual fantasy. Uh, And Joyce was actually, I mean, a, a tremendous prude. He he didn't like vulgarity. Uh, I mean, he, he he wrote the occasional erotic letter to Nora Barnacle, um, but they're so few that when they come up for sale in auctions, you know, they, they kind of go for 300 grand or whatever. Yeah. But, but what, what, what reviews go on and on and on about is how obscene it is and, and how vulgar it is and how common it is. And the person who, Oh, I know where you're going with this. Who, who, who famously was appalled by it was Virginia Woolf. The John Lennon who, of the early 20th century, who, who, <laughs> in who my in view. in the long run, who in the long run would, of course, be, you know, with Mrs. Dalloway and everything, would be hugely influenced by Ulysses. But she, the scratching of pimples on the body of the boot boy at Claridge's. Well, I know some of our listeners have a, have a tendresse for Virginia Woolf. And I will merely say, this is how she describes Ulysses, an illiterate underbred book the book of a self-taught working man, and we all know how distressing they are, how egotistic, <laughs> insistent, raw, striking, and ultimately nauseating. So that's Virginia Woolf on our listeners, because I like to think our listeners are very much <laughs> the salt of the earth. Um, and that's why we have a we have a series of Penguin Classics kind of branded cups at home, and I refuse to drink out of the uh, Virginia Woolf mug because I won't, and I won't give Mrs. Woolf the satisfaction drinking right. from her branded mug. But Virginia Woolf was was keener on the wasteland. Yeah, so, so the was, wasteland she comes was kind out of the, end of the year. of T. S. Eliot. Yeah, she was, she was, and the wasteland I think gets a. I mean, because it's a poem, it doesn't get the same scrutiny um, from the the popular press as a novel would. And the wasteland obviously isn't effectively. I mean, Ulysses doesn't come out. You can't read Ulysses in Britain until the nineteen thirties, unless you go to France or somewhere to get a copy. And, um, and that, of course, adds to its notoriety. Yeah. So it's, I mean, it's a book that lots and lots of people have both heard of and not read. Yeah. And, and the vast numbers of people who haven't read it is kind of part of its fame. Yeah. Whereas The Wasteland, I think it's just a poem that most people just haven't read because most people probably don't read much poetry. You know, there's this fantastic story about T.S. Eliot going to Buckingham Palace to read it. Have you heard this? Is this the one where the Queen Mother giggles? Yes. Get the giggles. He goes to read it to George VI, the Queen <laughs> He's Mother. very serious, isn't he? Princess Elizabeth and prin- the current Queen and Princess Margaret. And he starts reading. <laughs> and the Queen, the queen Mother says they, the, the girls start laughing. And then she starts laughing. And then ki- the King starts laughing. And T.S. Eliot is there, you know, <laughs> shanty, serious. shanty, shanty, whatever. <laughs> yeah. And they're just so, laughing at him. But I, And I guess the reason for that is that um, The Wasteland is, is, again, like Ulysses, it's a difficult poem. Uh, you know, and Elliot has said, poets in our civilization, as it exists at present, must be difficult. And what he's essentially doing is that he's saying that that after the war, maybe before that, civilization has been smashed into so many pieces that you can only have fragments. And so you read it and it is a kind of bewildering compendium of voices. And a bit like a, a Picasso painting, there may be a hint of a guitar or a bull in a, you know, a <laughs> geometric yeah. shape. You get kind of hit. So, um, in right, you know, April's cruelest month is famously the opening, uh, and then suddenly you get this the voice of this girl. Um, and when we were children, staying at the Archduke's, my cousins, he took me out on a sled, and I was frightened. Um, the Archduke. I mean, it's not saying who the Archduke is, but there's the echo of 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 the incident that began the war, and the whole poem kind of operates like that. It, you know, you get you get very very highbrow voices you get voices in foreign languages you get 
demotic voices. Um, and it's it's disorienting and I think brilliant in its impact. And again, Pound has a crucial influence on this because he Elliot sends him the first draft of it and he revises it. And he has what is my all time favourite response of um, a friend reading uh, a- another friend's work. <laughs> Complimenting you, bitch. Oh, I am God. racked by the seven jealousies. <laughs> and I think if if writers are being honest, we've all yeah. we've all slightly that's right because when you when you're, when a friend of yours <laughs> sends you something to read, you basically yeah. want it to be you don't want it to be terrible, but you want it to be <laughs> just slightly better than mediocre, don't you? And when it's brilliant, you just think, oh no, disastrous. Yeah, think, yeah, yeah. Well, there's like perhaps a slight <laughs> element of that. Um, <laughs> but you know, standing back from from particularly from the wasteland, um, I mean, we're going to come on to the politics of the twenties in a second. Um, but to me, it feels so indelibly marked by the Great War. I mean, there's that moment Absolutely, when the, yeah. the, there are the the crowds of of the dead coming across the is it London yeah. Bridge? Unreal uh, city under the brown fog of a winter dawn. A crowd flowed over London Bridge. So many I had not thought death had undone so many. And yeah. that sort of I mean, you're everybody in 1922 is living in a world where. You know, there are, there are, there are families on every street who are mourning people lost in the war, where so many of the old certainties have been destroyed. Empires, countries, um, assumptions, political parties, institutions, and so on. But also, of course, Spanish flu. I mean, that's yeah. one thing that, that really looms large now looking from our sort of COVID stricken yeah. viewpoint. Well, that, I mean, um, that phrase, the brown fog of a winter yeah. dawn. I remember, um, actually walking across London Bridge in the depths of the lockdown uh, and remembering that, fr- in, it was last January, remembering that that phrase, the brown, the brown fog of a winter dawn as mm. emblematic of disease. Yeah. And the sort of, uh, I, I, when we come onto the politics, so much of the language that people use, they talk about viruses and germs and the bacillus of Bolshevism and stuff. Mm. and And that stuff is, there's a kind of morbidity. There's a historian called Richard Overy who's written a brilliant book about um, Britain, about British culture um, in the 1920s and 30s called The Morbid Age. And he talks again and again in this book about how there's this, this sense of civilization having cracked and, yeah. and an inevitable doom and decadence and degeneracy um, awaiting. And that, I mean, and that is the, the, essentially the theme of the wasteland. And it doesn't really offer redemption. Um, well, at the end, there's the sort of doesn't the water fall on the dried earth? Kind of, a sort of kind of. Up? But but in the long run, El- the, the Re- Elliot will find redemption in becoming very conservative. So he yeah. he, be- he gets baptized into the Church of England. Um, he becomes a kind of royalist and a traditionalist, and he does kind of stitch back together the great kind of inheritance of tradition that he smashed in the wasteland. Um, and so maybe. Maybe that was recognised by the woman who provided the money wow, to publish, very good link. Very good to link. publish uh, the Criterion, which is the magazine in which the Wasteland was published. Yes. So people always get the publications wrong with modernism because they think it's all about little magazines and the Criterion and so on. But actually, of course, as you know, Tom, mm-hmm. the money for the Criterion is put up by by Lady Rothermere, the wife of Lord Rothermere. Um, proprietor of the Daily Mail. And of course, Indeed. the Daily Mail also played a very important part in the genesis of modernism because Joseph Conrad had been a great Daily Mail man and indeed at one point signed a contract to be a columnist for the Daily Mail. Did you know this? 
<laughs> Great writers. The Daily Mail employs nothing but I think the best. They, well, you know what? Joseph Conrad, he, he, he couldn't get on with this, actually. He couldn't, he wasn't good at writing to deadline. Did he find it, it, his integrity wouldn't allow him? No, to... he did not. He <laughs> desperately wanted to do it. I think in some ways, Joseph Conrad was probably too conservative for the Daily Mail. Uh, he couldn't, he couldn't bring, he couldn't do it in time. So do you know who he got to go write his articles for him? No, I don't. The poet Edward Thomas. Brilliant. Edward Only Thomas connect. wrote for Only the connect. Daily Mail as Joseph Conrad. How about that? But you that? know, um, Pound's take on the Rothermere's. No, I don't. <laughs> oh no, Tom. A family, a family, yeah. uh, Pound wrote damningly to Elliot. The Rothermere's yeah. are a family which is not interested in good literature. Well, Elliot did not agree because not only did Elliot publish The Wasteland and The Criterion, but in Kevin Jackson's book about 1922, which oh, I know so you've read, yes, Constellation, Constellation of Genius, Genius. he has a, a full note, I think it is, where he's talking about a trial where a, a couple have been, they've been hanged um, for the murder of the, the woman's husband. And the woman, it's, it's a very, so basically this woman was having an affair and she said to her lover, God, I wish my husband was dead. So her lover killed her husband. He jumped out of a bush, didn't he? He did. So the lover was understandably found guilty and hanged, but so was she. Even though she hadn't really meant, to, you know, she hadn't really been an accessory to it or anything. And, was and this, the murderer said that she wasn't. Yeah. So basically she was hanged very harshly, very harshly. There's a tremendous outcry about it. And the Daily Mail took a very, you know, robust... Stephen Lawrence. Uh, no, it took a very robust... Oh, did it? Okay. Well, um, so did Elliot. Elliot thought... And Elliot wrote to the paper and said, thank God you've taken such a strong view. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad you haven't gone in for that, what did he call it? Flaccid sentimentality. Yeah. <laughs> Something about hanging. Yeah. So yeah. Elliot, Elliot wanted more women to be hanged. No, so Elliot, anyway... Elliot was, Elliot was very robust. He, he, well, robust is probably not well, he was, And a, a bit like Virginia Woolf, he was a bit of a snob. He was so a bit, actually, yes. He, he was. also was obsessed with spotty men. Yeah. So, was, like Virginia Woolf, going man, on about the spotty... Is, is it the young boy, man carbuncular? The young man the, carbuncular, one of the low on whom assurance sits as a silk hat on a Bradford millionaire. Right. We should um, probably take a break, Tom, because we've got quite bogged down in... Um... <laughs> I think we got bogged down. I think we were taking wing. How do you think so? Yeah, I think in writers writing to the Daily Mail, I think that I think that's really the definition of getting um, getting a bit bogged down. But I think after the break, what we'll do is we will step back a bit and widen our focus, and we'll talk about the context for all this, which is the, the splintering of all those old certainties, the collapse of empires, yeah. and the international outlook. So uh, we shall see you after the break. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kaye, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. 
Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome back to The Rest is History. We are talking 1922, it's 100 years ago this year. And Dominic, um, you're very keen on doing this um, because you're seriously arguing that this is a year where, in a sense, kind of the modern begins. Uh, yeah. But of course, 1922 exists in the context of the monumental civilizational smash-up that was the Great War. So... Um, how how is the world kind of healing in the wake of the war? Or well, I don't think healing? He, healing is really the word. Actually, mm. um, there's just a, there's a general sense of rubble, I think, and I think maybe in the, this sort of second half, a wasteland we're to, even. We're, we're going, yeah, it's very much a wasteland. So we're going to do two two episodes on this, really, aren't we? And I think in this second half, we should concentrate on three countries in particular. So one of them, the most obvious one that has been sort of maimed, dismembered, pauperized, is, yeah. Is um is Germany, so Germany has lost its empire. It's it's been reduced. Um, actually, nineteen twenty two specifically is not. I mean, it's not as bad as some years for Germany. So Germany is has gone through a revolution. Um, there has been kind of fighting between the the, the Spartacists and the Freikorps, but by and large, the Weimar Republic has kind of got things back under control. There are sort of straws in the wind, though. So Hitler is joined the Nazi party. He's, become so he's Nazi making parties. mischief in Munich. He's exactly. He's, he's sort of giving rabble rousing beer hall speeches to kind so of, this is the point where he's discovered his gift for, or he has exactly. And, yeah. So having infiltrated the Nazi party initially as a kind of army sort of Colonel. informer. Sorry, yeah, cool, he's cool. yeah, exactly. He has become, um, he has become the great orator of the Nazi party and has become its leader. Um, but he hasn't quite got the sort of national following that he'll get later because he hasn't done his kind of beer hall putsch yet. So he's still a sort of demagogic rabble rouser rather than a sort of national player. Um, but you do have a sense, I think, in Germany. So there's a guy called Walter Rathenau, who is the foreign minister, who negotiates a, a, um, is he a the deal. He gets assassinated. He gets assassinated exactly by right-wing paramilitaries. So there's a real sense of the instability at the core of the Weimar Republic. Um, you also have in Germany the sort of the the cultural expression of the kind of the morbidity and the dissolution. So you have things like the film Nosferatu, yeah, and the you know which is a version Great of reworking the, of Dracula, isn't exactly it? of Dracula vampire story, and that sort of obsession. That there's a kind of vampiric obsession in German in, in German expressionist kind of cinematic culture in the twenties. George Grace's cartoons, yeah. Are- Horrible, incredibly horrible, scatological scathing. Yeah, 
all yeah. of that stuff. Yeah. Or Fritz Lang does his first Dr. Mabuse of, um, uh, films in 1922. Again, sort of brooding, dark, sort of vampiric so, stuff. So famously, um, in the long run, the, the Nazis will come to power by saying that Germany hadn't actually lost the First World War, they were stabbed in the back. Yeah. Is there, in 1922, do Germans feel that they are a defeated people? Or do they feel that they've been betrayed and that they could have carried on? I think it's, it depends on the German, actually. Yeah, okay. I think um, some, you know, let's say the people that Rattenau kind of represents, so that, that, they, that would be the kind of, you know, you, you have a part of... Germany that is invested in the Weimar Republic and they would be kind of liberal-minded, middle-class, sort of democratically-minded people. But you have an enormous number of people in the kind of conservative, on the conservative wing of the spectrum, who, you know, they don't ex really ever accept the legitimacy of the Weimar Republic. They do think that Germany was betrayed in some way. I mean, this is the argument that Eric Ludendorff, former mm. sort of co-dictator of Germany at the end of the First World War, is, is pushing by this point in the early 20s, he's saying, well, we could have fought on, but the politicians wouldn't let us and the, we were betrayed by fifth columnists and all this sort of thing. Um, and obviously the, the, the chief scapegoats are the Jews. Yeah. Um, and, you, and you definitely see this already. And there's a sort of paramilitary quality of German politics already. Yeah. Um, and part so, of that is so the communists fighting um, the, the right, the hard right. Yeah. Um, in Berlin and Munich and, and so on. Yeah. Presumably what the effect of that is that it is... Um, it's kind of delegitimizing every every kind of authority, every exactly, ev every yeah. kind of break on the resort to violence. Yeah, the violent. I think violence, a kind of paramilitary violence, is built into the, is in, is implicit in the, the sort of post-war Germany from the very beginning because its early months are scarred by so much fighting. Kind of attempt to set up a, a Soviet in in Munich and so on, kind of Bavarian Socialist Republic. Um, endless sort of push, uh, sort of pushes and 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 coups and so on, um, and and this sort of this sort of sense of um, that the Weimar that the Republic never has it never really commands a widespread acceptance across German society, and I think that that means that although it later on in the twenties that has this brief period where it seems like it's becoming a bit more stable. That's after the great inflation of 1922-33 has abated. Yeah. So the inflation. Yeah, and the inflation is absolutely crazy. That's, that's the key. I mean, that's the, 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 the real killer. Yeah, so the inflation, I think at the beginning of 22, um, a mark is worth, you can, you can get something like 350 marks to the, to the dollar. Um, and by the end of 1922, it's something like, um, what is, I mean, it's, it sounds unbelievable, 7,400 marks to the dollar so that's a, a i mean a colossal change a colossal sort of debauching of your currency and then by late 1923 it's billions of marks to the dollar so i mean that's your classic image of the wheelbarrows full yeah. of banknotes and obviously that destroys people's savings it erodes middle class people's faith in the system and it pauper and it pauperizes the middle classes yeah completely absolutely and, and absolutely a pauperized middle class is always the the wellspring of a revolutionary activity and, and don't forget that, that all this is happening, Tom, against the backdrop of what we're going to talk about in a few minutes, which is Bolshevism, which is the yeah. arrival of the Russian Revolution. I think. Okay, but, but Dominic, just on the topic, so we're looking at 1922 as, you know, the, the year that modernity begins. One of, one of the enduring effects of the Great Inflation in Germany is 
a, a German horror at inflation. Yeah. Which has been a massive, massive factor in the evolution of the European Union. Yes. So in that sense, the economics of Germany in 1922 continue to reverberate right the way up into the present day. Yeah, I think they do because, of course, the German response to the, um, to the Eurozone crisis, um, was partly informed by the fact that yeah. that generations of, of German politicians have always sort of said never again, you know, inflation is the great enemy, yeah. which is ironic because actually the thing that really brought the Nazis to power was not inflation, was not the inflation. It was the unemployment caused by the onset of the Great Depression after 1931. Yeah. But, you know, it's the inflation, oddly, that has become the defining image of, of Weimar Germany, of its failure to... Well, I suppose Germany order. was so rich and prosperous and successful um, yeah. before the war that the, 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 the you know, uh, impoverished um, bourgeois carrying Mark notes on yes. wheelbarrows. Yeah. I mean, it's... You know, well, I think actually what you get is... Um, I don't know if you've read that book by... So Colm Tobin had a book last year about Thomas Mann. And uh, a novel about the life of Thomas Mann. So Thomas Mann wrote the, the 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 great book about kind of bourgeois German Victorianism, Buddenbrooks, about this family in Lübeck. And when you read the the column to be book about Mann's life, just that journey that nobody really in the English speaking world can possibly contemplate that you go from pre war, you know, Germany, the most dynamic, the most sort of self satisfied prosperous country in europe and in many ways the, most progressive yeah and in many and very progressive to this basket case mm. in the 1920s and then the horrors of the 30s and 40s and so on i mean it's right. just the most extraordinary and, trajectory and so if we're talking about the horrors of the 1930s and 40s and indeed the horrors of the 20th century generally uh the fact that um so 1922 is a key year in uh the, so it's establishment of the soviet union yeah it's effectively the establishment of Stalin's primacy, because although Lenin is still alive, he's yeah. had the stroke and Stalin has made himself general secretary of the communist party. And he uses this as a way to essentially muscle out the opposition and bring Lenin under his thumb. So communism obviously is a, a massive theme for the decades that are to come, but also in 1922, uh, and we did episode on the Rubicon um, a little bit earlier this week, but you have, Mussolini's fascism. march on Rome, yeah, and so the rise of fascism. Absolutely, um, and I think those two things are completely intertwined. So, what happens in Italy? Well, maybe we'll come on to Russia in just a second. Um, so, Italy, Italy had entered the First World War very foolishly, in my view, to try and get more territory. It had basically changed sides, um, done a dirty deal to come in on the Allied side because they want to snatch bits of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Um, the Italian army had performed incredibly poorly. Soldiers very heroically, but the generals utterly inept. They'd lost 700,000 men. They'd run up colossal debts. They'd gained virtually nothing. And at the end of the war, they're given, they're fobbed, as they see it, they're fobbed off by the other allies. They're not given the great empire they want in the Adriatic. They're given a bit of territory, but nothing like what they think they're going to get. And there's this tremendous sense in Italy that they have been utterly shortchanged, that they've had this horrendous experience. I mean, the fighting, the Italian front. They're kind the of blowing of off the tops of mountains, aren't they? It's awful. It's absolutely <laughs> awful. Yeah. They fight. There's, there's the Battle of the Isonzo. There are 12 battles of the Isonzo, I think. Yeah. They're just I, constantly I, charging at the Austrians and just being machine gunned. So um, some, some of all, I went to Lake Como, which I'd never been to, uh, and climbed up a mountain. And yeah. there was this tunnel that kind of went through... I mean, it went through a mountain. 
that have been cut, you know, hacked out with handpicks. And you just thought the absolute waste of effort that went into all that. The Italian front is so horrible that there are all these stories of Italians charging up their cast, which is this sort of exposed limestone um, mountainous region in the sort of Italian-Slovenian border. There are all these stories of Italians charging up these hillsides and the Austrians at the top of the hill shouting at them to go back, (laughs) basically saying, if you you turn back and run away, we won't shoot at you because, you know, we're going to kill you. And they, the Italians just keep coming and the Austrians just mow them down. And the Austrian army is completely inept itself. So the fact that it's able to hold off the Italians yeah. tells you how badly the Italian generals are performing. Anyway, um, this is a bit of a segue, a bit of a sidetrack rather. Uh, the Ita- Italy is a terrible, in a terrible state at the end of the First World War. It's, it's absolutely in, in the early twenties. It is riven by labor unrest. There are whole waves of factory occupations. There's tremendous unemployment. There's great hostility, sort of class hostility and so on. Um, and, and what you have in, by 1922 is that this guy, who has been a socialist journalist, Mussolini, completely shamelessly basically changes his colours mm-hmm. and offers his support and basically all the radical energy that he had previously put into the left-wing sort of cause. He basically gets into bed with the landowners, the factory owners and, and the right and says, you know, my squadristi, my my squads, my kind of paramilitary units are at your disposal to fight off Bolshevism. Um, and there's a, there's a series of punch-ups and there's a real sense of kind of seething violence. And then there's, there's a general strike in the late summer that fails. And against that backdrop, Mussolini launches his famous march on Rome. When Which he, isn't really a march, is it? No, it's, it's an absolute of... con. It's a complete con. He yeah. gets up in Naples and sort of gives this <laughs> tremendous speech saying, uh, we should all march on Rome and seize <laughs> Our program is simple. We want to rule Italy. Yeah. But then he doesn't go himself. He's such a coward. He doesn't go. He goes off to Milan instead. Well, they all, um, he says, you, 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 you and you, you can lead the march. I'll, I'll just weigh I'll in. Yeah. And then the king, the king makes him, appoints him prime minister. So the king, it's, it's a really interesting, um, parallel with what happens in Germany in 19, you know, the end of 32, early 33. Um, the Italian prime minister is a guy called Luigi Factor. And he basically says, you know, these fascists are a rabble. There's 20,000 of them. They're, they're pouring with rain. They're very bedraggled. We don't have anything to fear from them. I've got more troops. I'll declare a state of emergency, crush them, you know, and that'll be fine. And the king panics and refuses to sign the order, Victor Emmanuel III. And he says, he thinks, no, maybe the thing to do is, because he's obviously quite conservative himself, he thinks maybe the thing to do is bring Mussolini on side. You know, let's not have any trouble. And he appoints Mussolini as prime minister. And Mussolini turns up for the for the ceremony in his black shirt and the top hat. Yeah. Well, Dan Jackson um, has been <laughs> yeah. on our podcast yeah. to talk about the birth of the railways in a top hat, but he wasn't wearing a black shirt. No, he wasn't. So, well, he also wasn't about to become prime minister of Italy, to be fair to Dan. <laughs> no, he wasn't. So, so, um, so, yeah, so obviously the rise of fascism in Italy I mean, if you're looking at 1922, that's an absolutely massive moment because then people start in Germany saying, where is our Mussolini? Well, but Dominic, you said, uh, so So Mussolini goes from being a socialist to being a fascist. Yeah. And that this was a total reversal. But well, in, a way, yeah. in a way, I mean, he's not becoming a kind of supporter of liberal economics or capitalism no no no, Adam no smith no, or something no. i mean essentially the the energies of the fascists and the communists they're so electrifying because they're so similar isn't that right yeah you're right i mean, I mean we, could, we could get into a huge conversation here couldn't we about 
the sort of the the protein and the sort of yeah the the ambiguity because they're national socialists of, in yeah the ambiguity of fascism in the early twenties that it appears both radical and conservative of course it appears both modern and anti modern so fascist parties classically use radio cars planes they they glory in their modernity at the same time as they're harking back to a to an idealized yeah to idealized past and, and and the the guy who blazes the trail for that for Mussolini's denunzio terrible man absolutely who, who basically the man up, who got italy into the first world war in the first place yeah and and he establishes a kind of proto-fascist state in trieste which is where joyce had been where he yeah and of course denunzio is another is another poet another poet yeah like in blyton <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, so that's enough about fascists. What about communists? Yeah, I think. You see, I think. I don't know what you think, Tom. I think um, the two the two keys to this whole period are the Great War and communism, because it's fear of communism that drives a lot of the the sort of right wing stuff. Not that the right wing stuff doesn't have roots of its own, but I think that paralyzing fear of Bolshevism. I mean, paralyzing is the wrong word. Actually, it's an en- it's an energizing, yeah, energizing fear of. Yeah. Of communism, so Russia it's had its revolutions. Um, it's been through this period, uh, sort of from 1918 to 1920, of civil war, of this incredibly weird civil war with lots of different people, and the Czechs are involved, and the Allies mm. are, are sending troops. Most of the sort of the civil war is done and dusted by 1920, but there's still they're still mopping up in Central Asia in 1922, and in fact, extraordinarily, the last Allied forces, so the last Japanese forces, don't leave Siberia until 1922. They're in Vladivostok, yes. and they leave in the summer, and then the Red Red Army marches into Vladivostok on the 25th of of October. Um, but what's also going on, which I hadn't really appreciated until reading up on this, was that. There's a lot of attention given to the sort of famine caused by Stalin's collectivization measures later on. But there's a tremendously horrendous famine um, in Russia itself in 1922. So about five million people probably die God, that's incredible, of starvation. You don't even. In, on the Volga. But, and that the barely even registers. In places like Kazan and Samar. Yeah, exactly. That now so much has happened that, there, I mean, five million people. That that's kind of lost. Um, in, uh, while the Spanish flu is also... Yeah, of course. The Spanish flu is kind of becoming... Well, they're at, I suppose they're... Well, okay, but, but, of... but you've had you've had the First World War, millions die. Yeah. Spanish flu, millions die. This famine, which I'd never even heard of. I yeah, mean, I heard millions. the one in Ukraine, but I hadn't and something like one. something like 10 million people have died, died in the Russian Civil War. I mean, colossal. <sighs> like, I mean, just unbelievable figures. I mean, you know, and it's it's like Hitler says, that when you start talking about millions... The, the, the brain tune fades. Out. Yeah. You tune out. I think that's absolutely what happens. So there's one, been a one, sort of... One, the loss of one life is a tragedy. Uh, yeah, and, and a million is a statistic, exactly. Um, but the Soviet Union is... Well, it's not yet the Soviet Union. Russia is in a very uncertain place because they've had what they called war communism, where they basically seized estates and they tried to impu- suppress all capitalism. Then in 1921... Lenin had slightly changed course and he had said, well, we'll allow some rule, some small enterprise to happen and peasants can sell their surpluses. And this is what it's called his new economic policy, NEP. But then, as you say, Lenin has this stroke in May 1922. Um, it's a great what if, actually, Tom. I mean, it's the great what ifs that, that Trotskyists and Stalinists have argued about for decades. What would have happened if Lenin, what did Lenin really want for Russia? 
Lenin has this stroke, and as you said, Stalin, he really begins his rise. He gets, he controls Lenin, he controls access to Lenin, his general secretary of the party. So he's sharing power to, to two other guys, particularly Kamenev and Zinoviev. Um, but there is this sort of sense that Stalin is, because he has the party machine, he is the coming man. And it's Stalin who is probably the key player in the creation of the, the you know, the, the USSR. Okay, which is, of, is announced in December, is it? Yeah, December, December. Exactly. They have the big meetings to decide it, sort of 28th to the 30th of December. And it's not quite what Lenin wanted. So Lenin had wanted a union of Soviet republics of Europe and Asia. And Stalin changed the title to the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, I think partly because Lenin wanted, Lenin seems to have wanted a slightly more kind of federal system. He hated the idea of Russian, great Russian chauvinism. Liberal. And Stalin, sort of paradoxically, despite the fact he was Georgian, was not so keen on that. He didn't, he didn't want to encourage nationalism. So they take out the Europe and Asia stuff, and it's just the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. And it ends up, you know, it basically covers the old Tsarist empire. But isn't it also that, Le- that Lenin was, um, you know, in the best Marxist sense, wanted uh, universal revolution. Um, and it's Stalin in the long run who will go for socialism. Socialism in, in one country. In one country. Yeah, exactly um, right. So you're starting to see the process by which what the Soviet Union, as it becomes in December, will essentially become a, a communist equivalent of the Tsarist empire. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right actually, Tom. Because although for the uh, for the time being, Stalin is allied to Zinoviev, who wants to kind of export. Um, he's the head of the Comintern, so he's basically and Trotsky as well, of course, in charge, of course, and Trotsky very keen on all that. Um, but you're right that he's going to start moving that way. But of course, nobody else knows this, and I think we've we've probably gone on long enough on this episode. But this is the point in which we should end this. Nobody else knows that that's where. Bolshevism right. is going to go. Yeah. So they all yeah. think it's going to be exported. And you've got, we mentioned the Comintern. That's why you have partly one reason why you have the paramilitary politics in Germany. It's why you have fascism in Italy and so on, because it's against this power. This, I said, I said paralyzing again, and it's completely wrong. This sort of enervating, yeah. energizing fear. Um, and you see that in, I, 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 what I love about the early 20s that I think is so often missed by kind of the, the, the sort of roaring 20s cocktail glasses and F. Scott Fitzgerald view of it is the, is the mad kind of paranoia. And you see that in so much popular culture. So uh, I used to read these books when I was at, my, at school, which were utterly, utterly inappropriate, um, I think, by today's standards, which were the Bulldog Drummond books. We talked about Bulldog Drummond. Yes, in James um, Bond. In James Bond, he's an ancestor. And in 1922, Sapper, who is the um, his his real name is H C McNeil, and yet to, to pick up a theme of this podcast, Tom, he is encouraged into writing for the Daily Mail. <laughs> <laughs> he had been in the Royal Engineers. The Daily Mail has basically created modernity. Then, yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. So he he writes these books about this guy called Captain Hugh Drummond, and he's a he's a demobbed soldier, and like so many people, like so many of the people who joined, you know, Mussolini's black shirts or the the Freikorps in Germany. He's come back from the war, Drummond, and he doesn't, he's bored. He doesn't know what to do and he wants to fight people. And in this book, published second book in 1922, he sets up a group called the Black Gang and they dress up in black cokes, very Ku Klux Klan, and they go around beating up communists in, who are infiltrating. Is um, this written in the consciousness of what Mussolini's doing? No, I think it, 
Well, I suppose he probably must know to some, but I don't think well, it's. Deli- do I don't. That? I mean, I definitely don't think it's deliberately inspired. Right. Um, but people sort of say, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a point. I won't read out because I've been sending you quotes for the last you few have. days, many of which are utterly, uh, utterly unrepeatable. But there's a point in which two people are talking about what's going on. One of them says to the other. Um, that there is an organized and well-financed conspiracy to preach Bolshevism in England we have known for some time. How well-organized it is, we did not realize. But as you'll see, there is not a single manufacturing town or city in Great Britain that has not got a branch of that organization installed. He says, you can see in front of you the proofs of their appalling spread of these proletarian Sunday schools with their abominable propaganda and their avowed attempt to convert the children who attend them to a creed whose beginning is destruction and whose end is chaotic anarchy. But Dominic, aren't I right then? That communism is just Christianity in 1K. The well, proletarian exactly Sunday schools. Exactly but you know, picking same. up that stuff we were saying about the Spanish flu and viruses and the language of, in yeah. the, the wasteland, the, the same character then goes on to say, we're a free country, Sir John, but the time is coming when freedom as we understand it in the past will have to cease. That's very fascistic. We can't go on as the cesspit of Europe, sheltering microbes who infect us as soon as they are here. We want disinfecting. We want it badly. And this isn't Italy or Germany. This is Britain. And this is a, these are a series of books that are immensely popular with kind of, and are made into, into films in the, throughout the 1920s. They're immensely popular kind of middle class, you know, law abiding, respect, self-consciously respectable kind of people. And 1922 is, I think, the year when the British Empire is geographically speaking at its largest extent. Yeah. Britain is the victor in the First World War. So, so you that's might the think victor. that it was, um, you know, at it, its absolute peak. But as we shall find out in part two, it is in many ways a colossus with feet of clay, as Bart Van Loo would put it. <laughs> Very good. Um, so, Dominic, we'll, come, we'll, uh, we'll do another episode, put that out tomorrow and that will be on britain ireland the levant uh and america and uh richmore crompton and richmore crompton of course yes just william okay so um thanks very much for listening to this we will see you tomorrow bye-bye bye-bye thanks for listening to the rest is history For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.